Thank you. I'm, I'm really having a good time with you. Uh, this is the challenging one, though. Afternoon, after lunch. Can we lock in tight and still be about our task of thinking today? Um, when I really began to go through my own metamorphosis, my own transformation, water to mind, journey, losing Jesus, finding Jesus, however you want to describe it. From about 2004 through about 2000, I can tell you here, but I think a second, 2008. It's like five years, really. Mondays, which had always been my day off, became known as my thinking day. That's what I would call my thinking day. And I would give the day primarily to prayer and reading, but a lot of just thinking. And I would sit on my deck in in the you know the warm months when I could do that. And I don't think. I know for a year I thought about this question. What is salvation? I worked on that for a year. What is salvation? What is salvation? The answer I came up with is the kingdom of God. Our personal experience with salvation is our personal experience with the kingdom of God. But, but in general, it is best understood as a kind of belonging. So anyway, we're going to continue thinking here. I think it's, I think it's a worthy endeavor for leaders to gather together and think. I mean, we don't do that. That's not so much what Sunday morning is about. Sunday morning is about worship, sacrament, proclamation. But sometimes on Friday afternoon, we think together. And so Holy Spirit, help us to be enlivened in our thinking. Help us to have enough energy to stay alert and attentive to the task. And help us especially to think well about the hope that is the church of Jesus Christ in the earth today. Amen. So we started by talking about Jesus. We saw the logos in adolescence, Jesus as a boy. And what happened there in the incident in the temple. And then Jesus uh, slips away again, baptized by his cousin, goes into the wilderness, wrestles deeply with dark temptations to take ministry in wrong directions. Uh, The devil understands that Jesus cannot be tempted by evil, so he's tempted with good. this This is offering the ring to Gandalf. And Gandalf says, no, 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 no. You can't, no. I mean, you understand that I would want to use the ring for good, but through it, it would wield power. I mean, if Jesus goes down, in the name of good, goes down the path of acquiescing to these dark suggestions about how to go about his ministry. Uh, and it seems that all is lost. He overcomes. He comes back now filled with the power of the Spirit and begins to proclaim the kingdom of God. Everything Jesus ever did or said was either an enactment or an announcement of the kingdom of God. It was his sole topic. That's all he did was announce and enact the kingdom of God. Of course, a kingdom has a king, and this is what Messiah is. And this is who Jesus is, and he knows it. Before he even begins his ministry, he's now aware of that. He's fully aware of that. That's an interesting, we won't stop to ponder this, but uh, did Jesus know he was God? And if so, when? <coughs> when does he, I mean, you know, when he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in the manger, is he thinking, yeah, here I am. Totally incarnate logos. Wrapped in swabbing clothes. I can't even walk or talk. No, I, I don't think Jesus had any more self-awareness as an infant than any self, than any infant. But he does grow with that. <coughs> Certainly by the age of 12, he's able to speak of the temple of, as his father's house in a maybe cryptic uh, way, hinting to something quite grand. 
Even then, I don't think Jesus of Nazareth has memories of, oh yeah, I remember when, you know, the Father and the Holy Ghost, we'd hang out together, you know. And, no, it's not, it's not a memory, but it's a sense of vocation, an awareness of his identity and, and who he is. I think that, that grows in him, reaches some sort of fullness as he begins his ministry. Uh, on one level, this is Messiah, but Messiah is, is going to become much bigger than most traditionally thought. Messiah is just, Messiah, it, it comes from the idea that the, the Hebrew kings are anointed. Rather than the most ancient kings, it wasn't the crown, it was the oil. It was, you know, Samuel's horn of oil. And so the anointing, or the anointed, is, is how the Hebrew kings are crowned. But, but as time goes on, and destruction of Jerusalem, anticipation for restoration, all of that. Um, there's the idea that oh, no, there is going to be a very particular one that will arise. And his he will, he will have the title king of the Jews. He will become king. And of course, at this time, the Herodian dynasty lays claim to the kingship. They are the king of the Jews. Hair the great, hair down to pass, all the rest. Uh, but Jesus is going to claim that for himself. But he's rather clandestine about it early on. And when people say, you're the Messiah, that is, you are the one anointed by the Spirit of God to liberate Israel and bring about the purpose of God to and through Israel, Jesus says, shh. Tell him. Tell that. I mean, one of the reasons Jesus spoke in parables, it wasn't to illustrate his sermons. It was so that he wouldn't get killed in the first six weeks of his ministry. You know, he left room for people to connect the dots. The only time that Jesus allowed himself to publicly be acclaimed as Messiah was on Palm Sunday. And he was crucified within five days. Because that's how that deal is going to go down. Because you are... A political subversive then. It's, it's a direct challenge, of course, to the Herodian dynasty, but more significantly to the Roman Empire. You understand that Herod the Great became king of the Jews because he was declared so by the Roman Senate. So it was Rome that installed not only, not only the king, but also the high priest. The Jewish high priest, Caiaphas. Before him, Annas. These are political appointments that come directly from Rome. And so Jesus is challenging all of that. He arrives in Jerusalem to complete his ministry. They're going to Jerusalem so that he can be crowned king. Everybody with Jesus understands that. Not only the twelve, but a larger group of disciples from Galilee. They understand why they're going to Jerusalem. Yes, it's Passover. But no, now the revolution is going to begin. At last, Jesus will publicly be crowned as king. I mean, they understand that. And that's why it said they were, there was, they were fearful. They were going, but there's anxiety. Because, you know, you don't just march in. One does not simply walk into Mordor. You know, and he, he, Jesus is going to go to the capital. It's one thing to say to allow other people, you know, to allow other people to acclaim you as Messiah up in Galilee. It's another thing to go to the capital and say, "Yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm the King." So they're going with him. Of course, what they think—I mean, what they're what they are thinking—is going to happen is correct. How it's going to happen, they completely do not understand. Even though Jesus has been rather explicit, especially with the twelve. He says, you know, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be uh, condemned by the chief priests. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles and crucified. That's what's going to happen. Peter says it'll never happen because we failed. That happens. That can't happen to you. Because the whole thing falls apart. Get behind me and say, you're tempting me towards some sort of other program of pragmatism. No. It's going to happen. And on the third day, be raised. Uh, I think they hear on the third, because they, they come to the point now where they did 
believe in a resurrection. You know, that's hinted. The Jewish religion, um, up until the Second Temple period, had no real concept of the afterlife. That's, that's what made it such an unusual religion. Because Gentile religions are all built upon elaborate constructs of the afterlife. Uh, Jewish religion had almost zero emphasis on the afterlife. And what happens when you die? I don't know. But, but then eventually, very late, beginning around probably 160, BC 160, they start having some idea about resurrection. And I think what they hear Jesus, I think they hear on the third day as an idiom for Sunday. He, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. Hosea 6. I think they hear Jesus saying, I'm going to go. I'm going to be betrayed, condemned, crucified, and raised. Part of this anticipated resurrection that we're rather... Unclear about. So, uh, I don't think any of those traveling women really thought that Jesus would be killed. They think he's going to go and start a revolution, kill some Herodians, kill some Romans, and start the revolution and become king. Like kings always do. That's why Peter, that's why James and John come to him and say, hey, you know, you're coming into your glory, right? But when you, come into, when you come into your glory, in your kingdom, we would like to have prominent positions in your administration. We want to be on your right hand and on your left. Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. That's what we want. Jesus, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Be baptized with what I'm about to be baptized? Oh, yeah, sure, we're able. Jesus, what do you mean? But I'll tell you what. It's not for me to decide, but it's for who it has been prepared by my Father. And... Jesus becomes king not in spite of or despite of the cross or through the cross. His acclamation is by condemnation, an insult. His procession is to carry his cross through town. His scepter is a reed, his crown is made of thorns, and the cross is his throne. It is also His glory. And who are on His right and His left as He comes into His glory? Those crucified with Him. That's why Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You have no idea what you're saying, but you're actually asking to be crucified with Me. Jesus is crucified, and then He's raised on the third day. And the kingdom is now well underway. For a period of 40 days, an interim period between resurrection and ascension, Jesus kind of pops in and out. Always at mealtime, it seems. You know, he's one of those guys that shows up. Yeah, has supper, huh? Okay, great. Well, Jesus says on the night of his betrayal, he says, I will not eat. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until, until I drink it new. My father's kingdom or the kingdom that is to come. That's why after his resurrection, Jesus is always eating and drinking. Peter says in Acts chapter 10, we are those that ate and drank with him after his suffering. Because it's, Jesus is emphasizing that the kingdom is now inaugurated. There's a 40-day period between resurrection and ascension. This interim period. And it says that Jesus was talking to them about what he always talked about, the kingdom of God. Then there's the ascension. There's a 10-day period of prayer in the upper room, 120 people. And then on the day of Pentecost, of course, that's a Jewish feast, the Spirit is poured out. And the church is birthed. And we're off to the races. And in explaining what had happened, trying to explain to a gathering crowd what had happened... Peter draws upon a text from the Hebrew prophet Joel and said, In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. 
Peter says, this is what's happening. This is that. This is what has happened. So, with the time we have remaining, I want to talk about the dreams that I dream and and in particular about the dreams that I dream about the church. Okay, so we've been talking about Jesus that flows nicely into church and hope. I want to talk about the dreams that I dream for and about the church. Now, in my choice to talk about dreams, the dreams of old men instead of the visions of young men, this is not necessarily a concession to being old. (laughs) Not yet, anyway. I mean, you know, make the most of all of life. But I will admit that choosing dreams over visions as the primary way I want to talk about it, may may have something to do with stage of life. Because I think of it this way, visions are for those who are holding on tight and looking for direction. Dreams are for when you hold on loosely with less to lose, or something like that. Visions are pros and need a plan. I mean, as soon as you give a vision, people want the plan. Dreams are poetry and need only be dreamt. Visions are still a little bit tethered to what we think is possible. Dreams are a portal to a world where all things are possible. They are true transcendence. We are free to dream of that which we have no idea how it would come to pass. Those who think dreams are a waste of time may think the same thing about poetry. But they are very wrong. Every genuine breakthrough into newness begins as an impossible dream. And much of the Bible is poetry from those inspired dreamers we call prophets. I'm not talking about daydreams or pipe dreams or idle dreams. I'm talking about the spirit-inspired dreams endorsed by Peter at Pentecost. Because without such dreams, we are imprisoned by the principalities and powers. Or what Walter Brueggemann calls the totalism of empire. You ever notice that, that empires, well, let's say it this way, dictators, one of the first things they do is try to kill off the poets. Why are emperors and dictators afraid of poets? It was like Richard Nixon was completely obsessed with John Lennon. John Lennon was living in New York City and and, and, uh, Nixon wanted to get him deported, kept trying to get the FBI to dig up something on him, get him out of here, get him deported, get rid of him. Why, Why does Nixon care about John Lennon? Because John Lennon is a dreamer. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Empires want to control everything, including what people think is possible. Empires justify what they do by trying to sell this idea. Well, it's just the way things are. This is how it has to be. You know, this is just the program. This is the only way it can be. And the poets go, I can think of a hundred different ways it could be. And I'll write a song about it, I mentioned. Those are the poets. Opening to the Spirit, who is the agency of all possibility. I have dreams from dreams. And my dreams are about the continuation of Christian faith into the age in which we are living through the church. And I have 12 of them. So all I can do is mention some of them. But it's like that breastplate of the high priest. Twelve stones for the twelve tribes. It's like the foundation stones in the new Jerusalem. Twelve. Number one. I dream of a church that is a city of refuge and a shelter from the storm. Uh, It seems that life in late modernity, post-modernity is wearisome. In my own context, we're living through the caustic culture wars that are so pervasive it seems we have no respite I dream of a church that is in fact a refuge for the weary a shelter from the storm you know in the in the Old Testament 
you had these cities of refuge. Where if there was a case, you know, it was a, it's in dispute. Was, was it murder? Was it accidental manslaughter? What's going on here? We don't know. But someone has been set upon and he's fleeing for his life. And if he could make it to a city of refuge, there he would find protection. There he could find rest. There we could wait and with calm heads decide what should be done. People on Sunday morning don't need more motivational talks. They need a shelter from the storm. Um, I was burned out from exhaustion. Buried in the hail. Poisoned in the bushes. Blown out on the trail. Hunted like a crocodile. Ravaged in the Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. This is Bob Dylan's shelter from the storm. I cannot hear that song that ends every line with, Come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. I always think of the church. I've heard newborn babies wailing like a moaning dove. Old men with broken teeth, stranded without love. Do I understand your question, man? Is it hopeless and forlorn? Come in, she said. I'll give you shelter from the storm. So I dream of a church that's kind of like that. A shelter from the storm. A place where people who do not find much or any welcome in this world are welcomed. I mean, I'm happy to say that Word of Life is that for a certain amount of people. Perry and I can name the names of people that I know would find very little welcome, be afforded very little dignity in the wider world out there because they don't make the grade. They don't amount to much in that system. They don't have the quality, the qualities that are demanded in that system to be given a, a second look or afforded some sort of status. I can think of all kinds of people that that wouldn't have it in the world, but in our church, they're beloved. And they're, they're accepted. And with all of their strangeness and idiosyncrasies that we eventually, eventually get over being irritating and find endearing. <laughs> that, you know, at first we were annoyed by them, but ten years on, it's like, oh, don't change a thing. I like it just the way you are. I dream of a church like that. Jesus... Uh, you know, the first words of the new world. When Jesus is raised, He shows up there in the upper room where the church will be born. And he just, He's just there. The room, the doors are locked. They're in, they're in their panic room. Because they are afraid. They're in their panic room. And Jesus doesn't knock. He doesn't come through the door. He just pop. He's just there. And He says, peace be with you. And then he repeats it, peace be with you. And so this is the first word of the new world. Peace be with you. Jesus doesn't come back speaking of retaliation and revenge. He comes back and says, peace be with you. And so if our churches are to be a shelter from the storm, they need to be peace churches. And because we are to be peace churches, I dream of a church that is a pioneer in the way of peace and never again a chaplain to the masters of war. I'll say that again because I can hear some of you trying to get that down. I dream of a church. Each one of these 12 will start with that line, so we'll just leave that. I dream of a church that is a pioneer in the way of peace and never again a chaplain to the masters of war. In my mind, the greatest infidelity of the church has been to serve the masters of war. Uh, in empires in the West, in the, in the West of Christendom, the role of the church in relation to the empire is that of a chaplain. Well, why does the empire need a chaplain? Well, because empires, you know, regularly have to go to war for a lot of different reasons. But they regularly have to go to war, which means you have to have young men to fight for wars. Now, getting young men to go to war is actually one of the easier things in life you can do. They'll do that. That's not hard at all. Show them a movie. Get a recruiter. You'll sign them up. It's not hard to do. 
They want to prove their manhood and have glory and be heroic. But you do have to assuage mom and dad. It's easy to get Johnny to go marching off to war, but you gotta, you need to assure mom and dad that should Johnny not come home, it was all for a noble, worthy, and indeed God-ordained cause. And so the role of a chaplaincy to the empire is to assure them that God is on our side. Again, in the American context, this was always the role played by the de facto state church of America, which was the various iterations of mainline Protestant churches. Episcopal, congregational, mainline Churches, And from the Revolutionary War to the various wars, uh, they fulfilled that role until Vietnam. And then for whatever reason, you had slightly liberal mainline Protestant churches, which had always served as a de facto church for the empire. Going, I, mean, I don't know about this. I don't know that I can bless this war. I'm conflicted. I think maybe, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we're not doing any good at all here. And that's when the evangelical church says, well, wait a minute, this is like a war against communists, isn't it? God is communist? Yes, okay, well, we'll bless your war. And that's when the switch happened. From the de facto state church being mainline Protestantism to being American evangelicalism. Because whoever gets to bless Caesar's war gets to be Caesar's priest. Well, I dream of a church that is a pioneer in the way of peace and never again a chaplain to the masters of war. Constantine's horrible vision... And the church is terrible compromise. I, you know what you know about Constantine, don't you? You know he's one of the generals. There was now a vacancy on Palatine Hill, so there's a civil war to see who's going to be the next Caesar. Constantine is going to fight a decisive battle for the Milvian Bridge. He wins, becomes Caesar. He's lived a whole conflicted life. His mom really is a Christian, a real deal Christian, Helena. His dad was a real deal pagan. And I think it was always told in those two worlds. Uh, the whole fable about what happened on the eve of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, I think is probably projected back into the story. I don't think it ever happened. I think it's a later Christian telling of the story. Especially from, uh, mm, who was that church father that was kind of commissioned to write a biography of Constantine, a hagiography, really. I can't remember his name. But anyway, as the story is told, on the eve of the uh, of the uh, on the eve of the battle, he sees presumably a cross in the heavens uh, with these words: "In this sign you shall conquer, conquer being a euphemism for kill." So, in the sign of the cross, where we discover that God is the God who would rather die than kill his enemies. Now that whole thing gets turned around and it becomes a talisman to be placed upon the implements of war and in the name of the cross they go forth and kill. And this provides a trajectory that leads... Now not all the Christendom does is bad, but it does put us on a trajectory that leads to the great world wars in Europe where in the name of national allegiance, Christians murdered Christians by the millions. And that becomes the final collapse of Christendom. Well, I dream of a church that just says, we're not going to go back and play that game ever again. We've learned our lesson the hard way. Three, I dream of a church that excels in contemplative practices and contemplative stances. I dream of a church that excels in contemplative practices and contemplative stances. Instead of culture war Christians, we need more contemplative Christians. Uh, the goal of contemplative prayer, I call it sitting with Jesus, is not detachment but love. Contemplatives are those who know how to hold disparate views together, not in the name of right and wrong because you can't contemplate in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but in the name of love. You know, we're given a vision of the church of the New Testament being governed by elders. It's the term elders. It's buderons, Elders. And um, often mimicking corporate culture. We turn that into board of directors. Where what you do is you get some of the wealthy, influential people in your church 
beyond the word. I don't think that's what we're aiming for, church governance. I think, I think elders should maybe in your mind be understood as contemplative. The contemplatives. Now, it tends to be elder because the, prob- the, the journey toward becoming contemplative is so arduous and so long that it takes half of a lifetime at least. Unless you're just a savant like Francis Assisi, but you're probably not. <laughs> so the journey to becoming contemplative involves a good amount of living, by which I mean a good amount of suffering. <laughs> uh, but if you allow it to have the proper effect in you, not, not embittering you, but opening you, then you, you learn how to hold all things together in love and not be reactive, not be dualistic. And so those are the, I dream of a church that, that excels in these contemplative practices and thus embodies contemplative stances. Number four, I dream of a church that is at home in God's good world instead of huddled anxiously at the departure gate. Yeah, I like that one too. I dream of a church that, it is, that is at home in God's good world instead of huddled anxiously at the departure gate. As I've already said in our time together today, we're not trying to get to heaven. We're trying to get heaven to here. The blessed hope, the historic blessed hope is not we're going, but Jesus is coming. Outside of these walls lies God's good world. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Don't turn that into God so hated the world that He killed His only begotten Son. But that's how a distorted theology really deals. God so hated the world that He killed His only begotten Son so He didn't feel good about the world. Get that out of the system. Okay, I feel better now. I, I killed someone. Justice has been served. Oh, mighty justice. See, one of the problems with penal substitutionary atonement theory is it raises the question, who's in charge here? God's not like to forgive you, but I've got to satisfy justice. And justice is going to demand blood. So, i got to talk to someone higher? I guess so. That's part of the problem with that theory. I dream of a church that is at home in God's good world instead of anxiously huddled at the departure gate Eschatology is not something you tag on at the end of your theology. Eschatology is, in fact, the opposite. It's not the caboose, it's the engine. I mean, it's, it's where we're being taken. This, it's the direct... If your eschatology is wrong, you can't end up in a good place. If you believe that we're inevitably moving toward a necessary, unavoidable, mega-war in the Middle East, well, you're not going to be a very good blessed peacemaker. Because you'll say, ah, you know, we talk about being peacemakers, but we know before Jesus can come, there has to be a mega war in the Middle East. And that, that's where you run into the perversity of hearing about another war, rumor of war, and Christians secretly going, oh, goody, goody. That's, that's a terrible perversity. So, we're not huddled anxiously at the departure gate waiting, waiting to get out of here. Rather, my dream is that we, we would be at home. One of the best compliments ever paid was a pastor friend of mine who observed my three sons are all grown now and saying, Brian, your three sons are at home in the world. I, I, it's hard for me to unpack that. If you, you, you get it. They know this world is their home and they're, they're, they're at home here. They're comfortable. For God so loved the world. The world, God's... You know, see, the world's tricky in John's writings. Because it's all cosmos, but it's God so loved the world, love not the world. So there, there's the world gone wrong, and then there's God's vision for the world. God so loved God's own vision for the goodness of the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes on Him might not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So what is God trying to do through Christ? Save the world. 
But don't cheapen that to save parts of people for another world. That is a that is a very cheapened idea of salvation that Jesus saving the world becomes Jesus saving parts of people for another world. Jesus didn't come to save your soul as a part of you for another world. Jesus came to save the world. I suppose it's maybe among my most radical beliefs. I believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. Meaning I believe the world is to be saved. Number five. I dream of a church where faith and science are not at odds. Pretty simple. I dream of a church where faith and science are not at odds. Because, why? Well, because if you think faith and science are at odds, you end up fighting battles you need not fight. And battles that you may not need to fight, you may lose. I tell my church regularly, I said, I do not know of a single major peer-reviewed scientific theory that is any threat to my faith. I can watch all of the nature documentaries and not have any crisis of faith. (laughs) Scientists are through a particular discipline engaging in the mystery of being, seeking to understand it. The mystics are doing the same thing. The scientists and the mystics are climbing the same mountain but from different sides, and they may very well meet at the summit. Or the scientists may get there later, and the mystics go, oh, at last, been waiting on you. Catholic Church is doing better in this department because they learned their lesson the hard way. They have a long memory because they've been around a long time. They actually keep records. And Protestants go bad. They just, oh, we'll just split and start, start over again. And we have no record of... We just sweep it under the carpet and forget about it. It's harder for Catholics to do that. So, at least in the West, one of the first, first persons to really come up with a scientific theory about... You know, heliocentric universe, or, or well, solar system, or they would have said universe at that point. That it's not the sun that's moving, it's we who are moving. That's Copernicus. And um, he, he was condemned as a, as a heresy. <laughs> well, you know, if that's true, the Bible can't because, you know, the Bible talks about, you know, the, 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 the sun rises and the sun sets, the four corners of the earth. And so uh, they condemned him of heresy, but he had the good sense to just go ahead and die pretty early on after that so they didn't get to put him on trial. But you know how they are. They were committed to it, so they dug him up. And they couldn't burn him at the stake, so they dug him up and, and then had a trial and then burned his corpse at the stake. feel better. <laughs> Galileo came along and, and a little later had some more empirical observations to say, you know, Copernicus was right. And he went through the same thing, and they threatened him, and he remembered, you know, Copernicus' corpse getting burned. And he says, I'm not even dead yet. I don't want to go through that. <laughs> so he signed a paper that says he recanted. Of course, of course, he really didn't. And then later on, basically everybody figured out, you know, it's true. <laughs> the earth actually revolves around the sun, and it's not a theological problem. I mean, we're able to be Christians and have a planet that revolves around the sun. So since then, really, now it's really more as we come into the 20th century, actually, but uh, Catholics have been a lot better about not thinking that there needs to be a, uh, a church that is at odds with science. I dream of a church where faith and science are not at odds. So, you know, um, if you care to accept it, the universe is 13.8 billion years old, plus or minus, plus or minus 0.04%. I know this because an Oxford physicist told this to me over dinner. And he is an evangelical Christian, raised by missionaries in Africa. Um, smarter than the average bear. <laughs> and he just said, Brian, I'm telling you, the universe is. 
billion years old, give or take 0.04%. So I can, I can give you 0.04%, but you can't come and tell me it's 6,000 years old. Because it's not. And I, I have no qualms with Darwin's observations. I had another, I had Francis Collins. This man, you know, got the Presidential Medal of Freedom for sequencing the human genome. Another evangelical Christian. He said, Brian, I don't know of a single vocational biologist who is an evangelical Christian who doesn't believe. And he said, believe is the wrong word. Who doesn't accept the theory of evolution. Because it's not an article of faith. It's a scientific observation that's been shown over and over and over. I have no, I mean, not only do I have no problem with it, I see the glory of God in it. God has to do what God actually does. Say, okay, God, you created all things. I sure did. How did you do it? I don't know. I just said some words didn't happen. No. God understands how, and, and through science, we kind of get to look at the plumbing and the wiring and go, it's fantastic. But God, do you realize it took, do you realize it took like 13 billion years before we get to, well, more than 13 billion years before we even get to humans? God says, I'm not in a hurry. Are you in a hurry? Sort of, well, don't worry. <laughs> Number six. I dream of a church that is conservative because there are wisdom traditions worth Preserving. Just as a matter of course, I think I should say this, and I'm very excited about this. I am a true theological conservative. My two most controversial positions, at least in America, that people associate with controversy, they, they, they associate me with two things. One, my assertion that the waging of war is incompatible with the ethics set forth in Christ. That's one. And two, my rejection of Calvin's penal substitutionary atonement theory. You can agree or disagree with me, but just know that I have the conservative position on this. Um, you may take the more liberal position that Christians can wait for. You may take the more modernist liberal position that in fact what is happening at the cross is that God is gaining the capital to forgive and that Jesus is saving us from God. Those are novel, new interpretations. The early church fought about all kinds of things. They fought about Christology, soteriology. They fought about ecclesiology. But if you ask them, well, should Christians go to war and kill? No. Everybody agreed on that. That's the, that's the ancient conservative position that later gets adapted. Um, and the same with atonement theory. I mean, my atonement doctrine is not something new I came up with. It is simply a robust embrace of the orthodox position that Eastern Orthodox still hold to this day. Um, so I'm conservative and I have deep respect for what the church has always believed in practice. This is the great tradition. Christianity is a received faith. You don't need to make it up. Yeah, that's right. You know, you go to... People have these websites, you know, churches. What we believe. And you go to it and it's like, you, you know, just some guy just sat around one afternoon. <laughs> ah, and then he gave it to his board and he goes, yeah, we're done with that. You don't get to do that. If you go to the Word of Life website, go to what we believe, you'll find the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. We did not write that. <laughs> it just got passed on and we said yes. <laughs> I was with my good friend, theologian, Dr. Bradley Jerzak. We were in Switzerland doing a theological conference together. We were having lunch, and for a little bit, both of us kind of disappeared into our phones. And uh, what had happened was, I'd got a text from Jason up from well, worship And he said, I'm, I'm with a pastor, and he's, getting, he's working out his, what we believe for our website, what you advise. And I said, um, you can't do that's a heresy. You don't get to make it up. It's the Apostles' Creed, it's the Nicene Creed, that's it. Boom. And I said, I, I just got a text from Jason. Yeah. Brad said, Yeah, so did I. Was, was he asking about uh, yeah, same thing. So he Jason didn't know we were sitting next to each other in Basel, Switzerland. So he texted both of us as two theologian friends, 
And we sent both of them the exact same answer. You don't get to make Christianity up. It's a received faith. So I dream of a church that is conservative because there are wisdom traditions worth preserving. But Jesus also said this. Every scribe instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasure things old and things new. So number seven, I dream of a church that is progressive because the journey is ongoing. So I dream of a church that is conservative because there are wisdom traditions worth preserving. I dream of a church that is progressive because the journey is ongoing. All that needs to be said has not yet been said. Jesus said in the upper room on the night of the Last Supper, in his upper room discourse, I have many other things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in the truth. I mean, for example, Jesus could have said, you know, I mean, he's getting, I mean, they're just finishing up supper. He's getting ready to go to the garden, get salmon, and the whole thing's going to, you know, start happening. He goes, oh yeah, I forgot to mention this. By the way, Gentiles as Gentiles are going to be allowed to be a part of this. That would, would just wreck the whole, what? No. <laughs> they weren't ready. That's true, it's going to happen, but they weren't going to. And I'm convinced that Jesus of Nazareth knew that. He hints at it. I have other sheep to gather into this world. And so there'll be one flock with one shepherd. What do you mean by that? Later. <laughs> and it takes, it takes Peter's mystical vision of the sheep and Paul's creative theology and justification to get the church. So don't the church gets there. Or you run into the issue, kind of the embarrassment if you want to think of it as such, that the Bible does not give us a clear, unequivocal condemnation of slavery as an institution. Now, if you want to defend the Bible, you could say things like, for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, when the topic is slavery, the Bible seems to be trying generally to mitigate its suffering. No, not always. But the Bible clearly just doesn't have a vision. Oh, yeah, well, what if we just did away with the whole institution? What? How would that work? I can't even imagine such a thing. Old and New Testament, even a New Testament, slaves, obey your masters with fear and trembling. Well, that's that, but, but the journey's ongoing. Christianity is not the Bible. Christianity is the Christian religion rooted in Scripture. But it is a separate entity. Yes, it's true that trees and soil are inseparable, but they're not the same thing. So it doesn't matter that the Bible doesn't give a queer, clear, unequivocal condemnation of slavery as an institution because Christian faith rooted in the soil of Scripture is capable over time of producing boughs and limbs of abolition. So that now the world over, all thinking Christians say, well, of course, slavery is an institutional evil, and the only possible ethical position in the light of Christ regarding slavery is to call for its absolute, immediate abolition. But we didn't start there. We arrived there through a progress, a progress, a journey. Amen. Number eight. I dream of a church that is a viable alternative to soulless secularism. I have a lot more to say about that tomorrow. But secularism is the modern idea that God is irrelevant to our lives. God may or may not exist, but He's irrelevant to our day-to-day lives. That secularism is the philosophical idea that nothing is ontologically sacred. That sacred is merely a construct that we impose upon something, but it isn't truly sacred. All that remains of the sacred in the modern era is what democracies or dictators say it is. Um, who is that theologian? I'm trying to think of his name right now. Uh, William Cavanaugh wrote a book entitled The Migration of the Holy. And he talks about how that which is sacred has moved, it hasn't completely disappeared, but it's moved from what we traditionally think of as holy temples, churches, faith, religion into the realm of the political. And that 
really all that's sacred anymore is what democracies or dictators say is sacred, but that's not true. Not for we who are Christians. Uh, we believe that Jesus is the Word made flesh. The Scripture is sacred. The worship is sacred. We believe in sacrament. Um, so I think, I, I do dream of a church that is a viable alternative to soulless secularism. Again, I'm not, I have so much to say about that tomorrow. I think I'll just leave most of that. I know some of you won't be here, but we got to wind this up one way or the other. Number, uh, I forgot to keep number eight. Nine, number nine. I dream of a church where my grandchildren's grandchildren learn to love and follow Jesus. I dream of a church where my grandchildren's grandchildren. I have grandchildren, I have seven of them. But what about, not their children, their grandchildren. See, I'm playing the long game. I'm not in this just for myself. My great, see they would be my, my, my great, great grandchildren may very well never know my name. That's only fair because I can't tell you the names of any of my great, great grandparents. So, so be it. But even though my great, great grandchildren will most probably never know my name, I still want to leave them a gift. Because yes, Christianity is a received faith. I want, I want to pass it on. I, I want to... I just, I, 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 that's what I'm thinking about now. Let me just flow right into number 8, 9, 10. I dream that we may still be the early church. I dream that we may still be the early church. I don't know. This is a dream. I dream we may still be the early church. In these end time prophecy books, um, we always have to be the Omega generation. You, you can envision something a few years out, but not too many. Because we have to be the stars of the show. The Omega Generation. Well, question. Could we be content if we are just one of the many caretaker generations? Whose role it is is simply receive the faith, care for it, pass it on. Beautiful. Is that enough? Well, I believe it is. I dream that maybe, I don't know, of course, we're still the early church. I mean, in the year of our Lord, 10,020... We will be regarded as the early church. Number 11. I dream that the church of the distant future will kindly forgive our faults for we too are a people of our time. I'll give it to you a couple more times. I dream that the church of the distant future will kindly forgive our faults for we too are a people of our time. You say, well, what are the particular faults that are a product of our time? Well, it's very hard for me to tell you here and now what we can't see here and now because I don't see it here and now. That's why, they're, that's why I dream of a church of the distant future that will forgive me for not being able to see what I just can't see. Very good. Finally, number 12, I dream of a church in the distant future with technology I can't imagine, but still practicing sacraments I immediately recognize. I dream of a church in the distant future with technology I can't imagine. You know, I mean, even in the course of my lifetime, it's changed so fast. So what kind of technology will the church be operating with a thousand years from now? Well, there's no sense in me trying to imagine because I know I can't. But I do imagine a church with technology I can't fathom. Practicing sacraments I immediately recognize. That's why I'm so big on weekly Eucharist, communion, Lord's Supper. That's sacrament. Imagine if we, we fly in Peter and Paul 
from the first century. And we bring them to our church this Sunday. Now they come with no more knowledge than they had in the first century. They don't know English. English wasn't even invented today. And so they come and, and they're not, they don't know what the lights are. They're stunned by that. The music is really weird and loud to them. They have no idea what's going on. They don't know where they are. They don't know what's happening. Until we come to the table. And Paul says, Peter, what is this? It's church. Because that's how, that's the church gathers. The church is defined by that sacrament. I mean, what is a Christian? It's a baptized person. That gathers around that table. Because even before there was a New Testament, there was a table. And there was bread we called the body of Christ. There was wine we called the blood of Christ. It's a sacrament because we can't, it's a sacred mystery. We can't fully explain it. Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. We will explain what we can, but we will always confess more than we can explain. So the Apostle Paul says it this way, the cup of blessing which we bless is our koinonia, our participation, our sharing, our common union, our communion in the blood of Christ. The bread which we break is our koinonia, our sharing, our partnership, our fellowship, our common union, our communion in the body of Christ. So we partake through bread and wine of the flesh and blood of Christ that we might be the flesh and blood presence of Christ in our world. These are the dreams that I dream about the church. I'm deeply committed to the church. I think I'm in safe company to say uh, this whole notion of uh, loving Jesus, believing in Jesus, but done with the church. I don't get that. I think that's a fallacy. I think you're fooling yourself. I think um, you're, you're actually also done with Jesus because works, or, or else you're just enormously selfish, because it's, it's only through the church that we pass on the faith to our children and grandchildren. I mean, you can conceivably be a Christian of some sort, at least not in practice, but in belief. About You can be a Christian in belief, not practice, but in belief without the church, without being a part of church, without being regularly involved in church. Your children are unlikely to be, and I'm almost certain grandchildren never will. So do you care so little about your children and your grandchildren? You say, well, yeah, I like Jesus and I want to have Jesus, but I don't care. They do. No. I mean, the church is the organ through which we pass on the faith. And the church, it's ecclesia, right? Everybody knows that? Called out. And then theologians and preachers do a lot of stuff on, you know, called out, called out of the world, called out, called out, what does it mean to be called out? I'm not saying that those kinds of sermons are bad, but I'm just saying that's not what the word means. The word ecclesia, I mean, the called out is implied very clearly. It's called out of your private home into a public gathering. That's what you're called out of. He's like, I left my home, my private home. I was called to come to the town hall, to the public gathering. And the church is a public gathering, not in the sense that the church, the church is not an assembly of friends gathering in a home. You can gather in a home, but. The church is not an assembly of friends having a meal and talking about Jesus. Friends getting together having a meal and talking about Jesus, I call friends getting together having a meal and talking about Jesus. <laughs> it's not church. Because church is the place where you gather with people whom you would never gather with otherwise. I mean, if I get, if I get together, if I, if I invite friends over to my house... And we're going to sit around and have a meal and talk about Jesus. That's cool because we all know each other. We like each other. And if some complete stranger walks in. Do you know him? Who are you? Why are you here? See, immediately, then you know it's not church. Yeah. Very good. Church is... A public gathering, and it could be in a, in a private home, but it's people come from their homes to here in the name of Jesus, in the name of church, and others will come. I mean, 
look, every Sunday morning I'm shaking hands, praying with, laughing with, crying with people that if it weren't for Jesus and Word of Life Church, I would never spend any time. I'm just being honest. Because we really, initially anyway, we don't have anything in common. We don't really share common interests. We're not, just, we're not the same. But we're called into a common place called the church through just circumstances that I can't even explain how it happened. We all ended up in the same church. And then over time, I, I would say initially we had nothing in common, but today I know we have a lot of things in common. I know their story, they know mine. We've become friends, but without the church it never would have happened because I'm about my just friend friends, I'm like a little picky. <laughs> you are too, but but I am too. You know, people always been like, invite over to my house and we'll watch a movie. I'm not so Jesus-y that I pick people that are way unlike me. People I'm comfortable with. That's not church. Church is where I am drawn together with people that in any other circumstance I'd be really uncomfortable with. But I learned to love them there. Because one of the, one of the most beautiful things about the church is the church is the most diverse thing, movement, organization, phenomenon in, in world history without any rival. Every continent, every class, every ethnicity, every language. And you can't, you, you can't say that about any other religion even comes close to this global diversity that is the church. And then in some way, in some way, I mean, obviously we're not going to have you know, hundreds of languages spoken in one local church in general, but... In every local church, it needs to be some version of expressing that kind of radical diversity. So our church is politically diverse. We're not a monolith. We have Trump supporters in our church, and we have, like, hell no, you know, in our church. And, but they're in the same church, and they know it. So on Christmas Eve forever, we've had a, we have our biggest circle. We have more people come to Christmas Eve at Word of Life than Easter times three, probably. Word of Life, Christmas Eve is huge. Thousands of people come. We had three services this year. And of course, you know, it's, it's a reenactment of the Christmas story. It's, we're, not, we're not trying to be super clever with it. We're just telling the Christmas story with song and scripture, prayer, live candles, real candles. That's a big deal. <laughs> All the animals are really there. They're real animals, including real candles. So we have three services. We have different crews of people. But during one of the services, I looked at there Actually, Paris pointed it down to me. We have the shepherds. One of the shepherds, these are word of one of the shepherds is an ICE officer, Immigration Customs Enforcement. This is the people whose, among other tasks, their job is to round up undocumented Americans. Standing right next to the ICE officer is a child from an undocumented family. And they know it. They know it. It's not a secret. You know, now I have people, it's not a problem in our church, outside of our, I have people outside of Word of Life Church. I'm going to drag them for this. You have ICE officers in your church. You have undocumented people in your church, you non patriots. Jesus hanging out with tax collectors. See, we all of a sudden, we cast, because Jesus like tax collectors, we like the tax collectors. Well, the tax collectors were like the ICE agents working for the empire. But Jesus would So at Word of Life Church, we're not a political monolith by any stretch of the imagination, but what we have cultivated is a culture of kindness. And so I, you know, Perry's talked to the ICE officers. I've sort of, I've talked to them a little bit, but I haven't broached the subject with the Perry hands. And I think they're just comfortable with the idea that the church is other. 
that at one point, at one time, they were given a order to arrest someone that's in our church, and they just said we can't do it. Now they ended up being arrested by someone else, but not by our church. Remember? And then our church stood up for this undocumented person and so barraged the judge with letters and other forms of you know, endorsement that the judge actually said at the hearing for this young man, he said, this, this, this young man must be a saint or something. I've never heard so much you know, good spoken about another human being. And he just dismissed the case. So those are the kind of miracles that can happen in the church. Your little home group of select friends is not going to produce that kind of miracle. Because it's not going to be that kind of gathering where it's diverse. So that's, that's the Jesus Church hope. Ta-da! There we are. Come on.